Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. You remember from last week how we saw how God called Moses and how God worked through Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And we had the ten plagues and then there was the Red Sea crossing and God led the Israelites to the mountain to Sinai, Mount Sinai, the very mountain where God had met Moses in the burning bush. And it was there that God gave the Israelites the law, the Ten Commandments. And God entered into a special relationship with Israel, for it was through Israel that God was going to bring peace and harmony to the world, that God was going to bring blessing to the whole world. And then God led the Israelites to the promised land, and Moses sent out spies to check out the land, and they came back, and they reported that the land was good, but the locals were big and scary. And so they decided not to enter the land. They refused to obey God and take possession of the land, and as a result, God was cross with them, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until a whole new generation emerged. Moses himself died and Joshua succeeded him as the new leader. And like Moses, Joshua sends two spies on a reconnaissance mission to check out Jericho. And Jericho seems to be your typical town from a western country film. There's just one inn and it's also the local saloon and the brothel. And these two respectable Jewish boys find themselves sitting in a brothel. And before they've had any opportunity to do any reconnaissance, the Jericho intelligence service is on to them, and they think they're as good as dead. But this prostitute, Rahab, rescues them. She hides them. She lies to the Jericho secret service. And later she lowers them out of her own window. Even more remarkable, these two Jewish boys discover that Rahab already knew about their God. And she had converted. She believed that their God was the true God, the God of heaven and earth. And she told them how All the people in Jericho were terrified of their God. When the two spies get back, they tell Joshua everything that happened. I can only imagine there must have been a few raised eyebrows. Why exactly were you in the brothel again? But nevertheless, they are encouraged by the spies' report and they decide to attack Jericho. Well, they actually don't attack. They march around the city blowing trumpets and shouting for seven days. On the seventh day, a miracle happens. The walls fall down. They rush in and they kill everyone except for Rahab and her family. And this is the beginning of the conquest of the land. And this is the problem for us today. How do we hand this seemingly, this apparent genocide, this apparent ethnic cleansing? We read in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 21 
They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And the phrase devoted and destroyed comes from the Hebrew word harem, which is a technical term, it's a religious term for devoting something to God by sacrifice. And it was a way of saying the victory belonged to God. It was a way of ensuring that no one profited from the victory except God. But it also meant that everything that was captured, including people, including women and children, had to be executed. And this is what happens at Jericho in chapter 6. This is what happens to the city I in chapter 8. And it's also what happens to the five southern cities that attack the Israelites and the cities in the north that also attack the Israelites. Isn't this genocide? How can a God of love and grace decree such a thing? This is an unanswerable question. That's my disclaimer right at the beginning. But today we're going to investigate this question to see if we can understand this parent genocide. Firstly, the next slide. So firstly, it was a just punishment. So it was a, you'll see, yeah. It was God's just punishment. 400 years prior, God said to Abraham that your descendants will have to wait until the distant future before they can take possession of the land. And the reason is given in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. And it's because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. God was patient and gracious with the local inhabitants for over 400 years. For over 400 years they had an opportunity to turn from their sin. And they were also very sinful. Part of their idol worship included promiscuous sexual activity, including having sex with animals, and it also included offering their own children as sacrifices to their idols. This is part of the detestable things that they did. All the, the, the detestable things that they did are recorded in Leviticus chapter 18. And near the end, in verse 24, we read, God says, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you have become defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. This was God's just punishment. Secondly, Israel is also subject to the same 
punishment when they sin. If we turn to the next slide, you will see. For example, Achem, in chapter 7 of, of Joshua, chapter 7, when he steals the devoted things, he too is subject to being devoted to destruction. Again, we read in Leviticus, the same chapter, just a few verses on in verse 28. God says, and if you, that is, if the Israelites defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Israel is subject to the same punishment. You see, it's not ethnic cleansing. It's not one standard for the local inhabitants and another standard for the Israelites. And the Israelites later do turn their back on God and they do practice these detestable things. And as a result, God brings judgment on them through the Assyrians and the Babylonians just as God brought judgment on the local inhabitants through Israel. And Israel, as a nation, is destroyed. It goes off into exile. God's same just punishment for Israel. Thirdly, if we look at the next slide, it was to prevent Israel from falling into idolatry and sin. It's interesting to note in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Israelites are told that they can only devote people to destruction when they are in the promised land. And the reason is given in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 18. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods and you will sin against the Lord your God. We need to bear in mind that Israel was an infant nation. It was a young new nation moving into a very big land with a very well-established culture, a sinful culture. And if the locals remained, they would draw the Israelites into idol worship and into following these detestable practices. And so just as a surgeon doesn't hesitate to cut out a cancer, so God needs to remove this cancer to prevent it from spreading to all of society and eventually destroying all good. God had to do this to ensure that the nation Israel would emerge. Fourthly, Israel is a unique nation. It's Israel is a theocracy. In other words, God is their king, God is their ruler, and Israel is his unique special nation. It was never God's intention for there ever to be violence and war. That was a result of the fall. It was the result of people's sinful desires, people's greed and pride that led to violence and war and the mess that the world is in. But God has entered into this messiness of the world and He's chosen Israel Abraham's descendants to be his means of bringing ultimate peace and harmony to the whole world. But in order for that nation to be formed in a land, God needs to remove the cancer first. 
But this is a completely unique situation. It's a one-off event and never to be repeated event. For no nation today is a theocracy. Even modern day Israel is not a theocracy. It's a secular, democratic society. Furthermore, with the coming of Jesus, the people of God are not defined as a, in, in terms of nationality, in terms of race, in terms of, uh, of language, but rather by our faith in Jesus. And followers of Jesus are from all nations, all racial groups, all languages, and even marginalized prostitutes like Rahab are welcome. Fifthly, we see that not everyone was destroyed. Of course, Rahab and her family were spared because they had put their faith into God. But also, after the battle against Ai, the city Ai, Joshua makes a, or renews the covenant with God at a town called Shashem. Now, they never attacked Shashem. They never defeated Shashem. And it seems as though the town of Shashem, the people of Shashem, had put their trust in God and had joined the Israelites. This is further confirmed in Joshua chapter, chapter 8 at the end, in verse 35, where it says, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens. That's the non-Israelites. Part of all Israel includes non-Israelites. Not all of Israel was ethnically Israelite. Not all of Israel were the physical descendants of Abraham. There were many foreigners who had put their faith in God who had joined Israel. Furthermore, in the very next chapter, in Joshua chapter 9, we discover that the Gibeonites had made a treaty with the Israelites. And therefore, they were not defeated. And if we look in Joshua chapter 11, where after Joshua has completed his campaign, it lists all the kings that Joshua has defeated. And then it says in chapter 11 and verse 19, no, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. And what we discover over here is that they gave an opportunity for them to make a peace treaty. And obviously those who had made a peace treaty weren't attacked. In fact, it's only the city Jericho and A that are actually attacked. The five cities in the south and the cities in the north, it's actually the local inhabitants that instigate the attack against the Israelites. Also, a closer reading of both Joshua and the next book in the Bible, Judges, especially chapter 1, reveals that it wasn't so much of a brutal conquest as much as a settlement. 
The Israelites generally settled in the hill countries. And a lot of, well, some of the local villages and towns joined in with them. There were, however, a few, but very decisive battles to ensure that the Israelites had a stronghold in the land. Sixthly, we need to appreciate the rhetoric of ancient Near Eastern conquest accounts. Within all ancient Middle Eastern conquest accounts, there is huge exaggeration. So, for example, the Merneptah Stella, which was a, a monument, a stone monument set up by Pharaoh after his conquest, military conquest, states Israel is wasted, its seed is not. This was in about 1200 BC. Obviously, that isn't true. That is a massive exaggeration. Similarly, the Moabite stone from 800 BC claims that Israel suffered everlasting destruction. In other words, they were devoted to destruction, completely destroyed. Again, that is a huge exaggeration. In Joshua chapter 11, we are told that Jabin, the king of Hazar, is killed, that all the people of Hazar are devoted to destruction, and the city is totally destroyed, burnt down. Then in the next book in the Bible, the book of Judges, we read in chapter 4 and verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Cain, who reigned in Hazor. Now obviously it's not the same Jabin, but it's most definitely the same city rebuilt and the same people group, a descendant of the former Jabin. So this means that there is a lot of ancient Middle Eastern conquest-type rhetoric and exaggeration going on in the devoted-to-destruction passages. Seventhly, the story has moved on. This is not the pinnacle of divine revelation. God's best self-revelation of Himself is seen in Jesus, who loves His enemies and prays for those who are persecuted. That is who we need to follow. That is what we need to be like. And Jesus died and rose again to bring an end to violence and war and ultimately to death. Furthermore, within the New Testament, we discover that our battle is not against flesh and blood, against other people, but against spiritual forces and ultimately against our own sin that is within us. Therefore, it's right that we have a problem with the devoted to destruction passages in the Old Testament. In fact, there would be a bigger problem if you didn't have a problem with that. Looking at the contextual issues like we've just done, 
helps us to better understand those passages, but the tension still remains. Sure, it wasn't an ethnic cleansing or genocide. Sure, there was a lot of exaggeration and ancient Middle Eastern rhetoric in the terms devoted to destruction. Sure, they were very evil and sinful people, and it was a just punishment. But surely innocent people died. Innocent children. And therefore it's right that we have a problem with these passages. For me personally, I I wouldn't have had so much of a problem if God had just brought... His judgment down on the local inhabitants by himself, like he does in the Exodus, without using the agency of humans to work out his judgment. See, I I can trust God. God is all-knowing and just. But when he uses a human agency, that becomes problematic for me. Yet, We have human law courts, which according to Paul in Romans chapter 13, mediate God's justice. And I don't have a problem with that. There is an incomprehensible element here. God is a complex character. God is beyond our comprehension. God, we can't fully grasp and fully understand God's ways and God's actions. I don't know why God did it the way He did it. I personally can't reconcile it. But I trust that God knows better than I do. And even though this conquest, this settlement led by Joshua is a unique situation, a one-off event, a never-to-be-repeated event. And it's definitely something we should never emulate. Rather, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Nevertheless, it is still God's word for us. For it reveals something of God's character. God is committed to punishing the guilty and getting rid of evil. So what does it mean for us today? Well, we need to take sin seriously. We need to deal with our sin and our wrongdoing. We need to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. We need to strive to be more like Jesus. The world at the moment is in a time of grace. God has come in the person of Jesus. God has taken all sin and all guilt upon Himself. And on the cross, He has destroyed it. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can enter into a right relationship with Him. And God in His love, is patiently giving us time to turn away from us and to turn to Him and seek forgiveness and to be restored into a relationship with Him. But when Jesus returns, 
we will all be held to an account. And God will punish the guilty. Those who have not sought forgiveness. Those who have not turned to God. And God will rid the whole earth of evil. He will destroy evil and He will renew the earth. And there will be no more violence, no more wars, and no more death. Everything will be made new again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrestle with these difficult passages, we confess our inability to fully grasp and fully understand your ways. Father, help us to trust you. Help us more to emulate Jesus in forgiving those who we struggle with, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. But help us too to take sin very seriously. Help us to turn away from our wrongdoing, our selfishness, our pride and our greed that leads to to violence in one form or another. Help us to turn from that and to turn to you and seek for forgiveness. And by your Holy Spirit, won't you help us to become the people that you created us to be? We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.